This is The Defrag, I'm Christopher Lawson. Australia, like many countries, is in the midst of a housing affordability crisis. The cost of buying or building a home has increased significantly. In the December quarter last year, Brisbane saw property prices increase by 9.6% on top of all the gains they'd already seen throughout the pandemic. And this is a trend that you see in many regions around the world. As people couldn't go into their offices, they decided to start moving out of town or moving to houses with more room. When you add this to grants that were available to encourage the building of new properties, regional communities saw significant construction activity. And available land both in the regions and in metropolitan areas decreased. It makes the prospect of buying a home much more challenging for first home buyers. So what do you do if you can't buy? Well, you rent. However, in many markets around the country, you can't even find a rental property. So why is it so difficult to find a rental property? And what is the solution to this crisis? And could the answer actually be found in building very tiny homes? Well, it's 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 not entirely clear because... Um, you know, somewhat paradoxically, it hit, it started at about the time that, you know, we shut our borders. So in in migration, international in-migration stopped. Um, so that source of, of kind of population growth and, and pressure on housing markets um, eased off a bit. My name is Paul Burton. I'm Professor of Urban Management and Planning and director of the Cities Research Institute at Griffith University, based mainly at our Gold Coast campus in southeast Queensland. What we have seen, of course, is that there's been perhaps more internal interstate migration than we had previously seen. Um, and, you know, so that kind of explains why some housing markets are getting very overheated, certainly where I am on the Gold Coast or you look in Brisbane or in the, on the Sunshine Coast. I mean, it, there, you know, there are virtually no vacancies. I mean, there's, the, the vacancy rate is, is minimal. And if you look at the population data, the, the net out-migration from New South Wales and Victoria and, and principally from Sydney and Melbourne uh, almost matches the net in migration to Queensland and southern uh, southeast Queensland, so Brisbane and its surrounds. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that all the people who are leaving Melbourne and Sydney are coming up here, but a lot of them are. Um, so that's kind of putting pressure on the market. I mean, I think the other thing is it, it's un- unfortunately, I guess, unless you're a landlord, it, it's just I think. People just see this as an opportunity I can put prices up because demand is increasing. So let's let's respond by hiking prices. And in a market where it's, you know, there's not a lot of regulation on increasing rents, um, then, you know, you can get away with it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's that's adding to those pressures. I mean, I do worry a bit that, you know, now that the international borders are opening and, and we get you know, international migrants returning and including students, which, you know, universities like mine, we're we're very keen to see our international students returning. Um, But, you know, that's not going to make the situation any easier. 
I live in a regional community just outside of Melbourne, and demand in my local market is significant. It's not uncommon to see incoming families post desperately on local community groups to try and find a property that's available for rent. And the properties that are available for rent online are often very expensive. For example, if I look online today, the cheapest four-bedroom family home is $700 a week. You can save a little bit of money if you go for, say, a three-bedroom townhouse, but you'd still be looking at spending more than $500 per week. And it's a similar story around the country. I mean, where I am, Tambury Mountain, so I'm, what's that, 40 kilometres inland from the Gold Coast. Um, You know, very beautiful place. I don't think there's anything available for rent at the moment. Um, And and the rent levels have, have gone up. Over the last year, I would say by 50% at least. And Paul says that there are similar stories that can be found around the world. I speak to relatives in England. I've got a niece who's just moving from London to Bristol. I mean, she's really struggling to find somewhere. I think her and her boyfriend have now got a room in a shared house and it's costing them a phenomenal amount of money. I mean, really, really significant. So it... It's bad here in Australia, but it's, it's, it's happening around the developed world in a lot of places. I mean, if, if, it's, if it's not an issue, it's because the place is, you know, seriously in decline. I mean, it might be old, you know, steel towns in the, Austra- in the American Midwest or whatever. Um, but anywhere that's, that's, you know, people want to live, then there are rental pressures uh, and, and challenges, as well as the problem of, you know, buying. The price to buy is going up, so people are trapped in, in rental, even if they would like to get out. It's much more difficult than it was in the past. How has COVID impacted on what people desire from their home and what they, what they need in their home? I mean, I remember hearing early on that people were going, oh, I, you know, this, this demonstrates, you know, if you needed it, um, even more the, the great value of a, of, a, of a kind of mansion in the outer suburbs because they're so big. And what it has done, I think, is um, I hope, I think, and I hope it's made people think a bit more carefully about the use of space and the design, the interior design, because I suppose my criticism of a lot of the big, you know, four bedroom, double lock up McMansions that are going up in the, in the outer suburbs of all our cities is that they're not especially well designed. I mean, they're big, but you go, really, is this a good use of space? You know, you've got a media room that's the size of a small cinema, you know, and there's, there's two of you and, you know, even if all the kids come home and you invite your neighbours around, you're still going to be sitting there, you know, and if it's just the two of you <laughs> watching Australia's Got Talent, you know, it's like sitting in an empty c- cinema, you know, it's like, what, why do you need that space? We, we know that when, when space is constrained, we use it much more sensibly and it, and it forces our, it forces our designers architects and interior designers to, to be much more careful. You know, you look at the design of boats. I mean, they, they make use of every available 
bit of space and and you know and, and often those spaces are the better for it whereas if there's no constraints oh we'll just we'll you know just keep expanding the footprint then it's often done in a kind of thoughtless way and then you're left with a property you go well it's it's big but it's not actually very nice to live in i can't furnish it because it's so massive if i live down south it's going to be cost me a fortune to eat it in the winter if i live up here or further north it's going to cost me a fortune to keep it warm and uh, cool in summer um you know and I've, I've i've got something that's big and if if your measure of goodness is how big it is then fine but you know in my view it's it's often these things are big but not very well thought out not very well designed not very efficient not very sustainable and we could do better so tiny houses are a, are a kind of nod in the direction of a more thoughtful use of space so how could tiny houses help solve the issue of rental affordability that's coming up after this quick break If you're enjoying this episode of The Defrag and you want to support the work that we're doing, head on over to our website, thedefrag.com and become a Defrag member. You can get an ad-free version of the podcast, a sticker pack, a regular newsletter and discounts to our merch. Plus, there's a number of other perks depending on your membership level. Becoming a member is really the best way to support the show. It empowers us to produce independent journalism and gives you the best of the podcast without all the noise. So head on over to our website, thedefrag.com, and become a member today. Given the struggles with rental availability across Australia and around the world, could the solution be found in tiny homes? The tiny house movement has long advocated for the downsizing of houses, but is it really the answer to making homes more affordable? Some people call them foes, tiny houses on wheels. Um, And, you know, there are interesting discussions. What's the difference between a tiny house on wheels and a caravan? Well, maybe a caravan is, there may not be that much difference in interior space, but I guess a caravan is designed to be moved around more often than a tiny house. A tiny house typically isn't designed with any aerodynamics (laughs) in mind, Um, but it is, you know, they are on wheels and and the principle is that, you know, if you need to, you can hitch them up to something and move move to another place. Um, And that can have its attractions. Um, But, uh, yeah, we also want to think about those more permanent structures that are maybe about the same size, but yeah, they're sitting, you know, mines on stumps or a slab or on ground or whatever. Um, They could be attached, they could be detached, they could be secondary dwellings that are, you know, down the bottom of the garden like my shed, um, or they could be closer closer to the house. So there's there's a whole host of ways that you can use this, this kind of ancillary dwelling. The problem that we have with with a lot of the planning regulations is they say if you're allowed to do this you can do it and, and it can be occupied by family members or household members but you can't let it out to a stranger 
you know, or even a friend. These restrictions make the addition of a secondary dwelling more of a luxury item for a homeowner, rather than a way that they can bring in further income. But these rules are being reviewed around the country. Victoria last year finished a trial across four council regions that involved the relaxing of rules around secondary dwellings, with homeowners able to construct a space of up to 60 square metres. The results from that trial will be used to inform future policy changes. In New South Wales, in response to the significant flood events seen earlier this year, the New South Wales government has relaxed restrictions on temporary dwellings, allowing those affected by floods to install movable dwellings on their land without the need for council approval. If they want to remain in that dwelling past two years, they will then need to seek approval. And Paul says that these restrictions need to change around the country to enable more tiny homes to be built. Often there are limits on the occupancy of that secondary dwelling um, for people who aren't part of your household. Now, the policing of that is interesting. You know, I mean, how, how would you know whether somebody is, you know, if I, if I was living in my shed here, how would you know whether, I, how, would, how would anyone know whether at six o'clock each evening I'd go up to the big house, have dinner with the people up there and then come back here to sleep? Or not, you know, how, who, who would know that um, and enforce it? But often th- those are the regulations that exist in many places. And, and you know, our view is they could be reviewed and maybe relaxed a bit. I don't, we don't think it would be the end of civilization if you were to say, yeah, that's available to, to you know, unrelated sharers. It provides, you know, it's a, it's a source of, it's a, accommodation for somebody it can give you a source of income and it's not dramatically changing the residential landscape it's not like you're putting up a three-story apartment block in your back garden or pulling your house down and replacing it with a 10-story apartment block you know it's it's the kind of infill that often if it's done well, and, and we're not saying get rid of all regulations, but if it's done well and thoughtfully, um, you know, it's it's not very noticeable. But if you add it all up, it could make, you know, a small but significant contribution to increasing the stock um, of potentially more affordable rental properties. Also making news today, facial recognition company Clearview AI has agreed to a permanent ban on selling its FacePoint database to private companies. The agreement was filed in an Illinois court and comes off the back of an ACLU lawsuit from 2020. The lawsuit alleged that Clearview AI were in breach of the Biometric Information Privacy Act by illegally collecting and storing data on citizens without their consent. The lawsuit also alleged that Clearview was selling this data to businesses and law enforcement. While the settlement still allows Clearview to work with federal agencies and law enforcement outside Illinois, it does prevent the company from dealing with local and state government agencies for a period of five years. 
Clearview is also required to maintain an opt-out program for residents who can request their photograph from being collected and used in the database. Match Group, the parent company of dating apps like Tinder and OkCupid, are suing Google for anti-competitive tactics and control over payments made through the Google Play Store. Match Group alleged that Google is maintaining a monopoly on the Android ecosystem, in which the company takes a 30% cut of in-app payments. The lawsuit sees Match Group join other major app developers in recent years, like Epic Games, take on Google and Apple over alleged antitrust violations. And finally today, a cargo vessel has successfully docked with China's under-construction Tiangong Space Station, ahead of a new three-person crew expected to arrive next month. The vessel was carrying supplies, research equipment and spare parts for the crew's six-month stay, which will be China's longest space mission to date. Construction of the space station is expected to be finished this year with two laboratory modules to arrive in July and October. The Defrag is a production of Lawson Media. The show today was hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, and produced by James Parkinson. You can find out more about the show or listen to previous episodes at our website, thedefrag.com. That's all for today. We'll be back with more news on Thursday. 